Wow, you guys are so, I was listening backstage, like you're really awake today, which is such a blessing because nine o'clock was not. So I don't know what's going on here. Ying and yang is happening or something, but so good to have you here. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors and uh, looking forward to, to that. And by the way, at these Next Step desserts, we have more than brownies. So just, you know, I, I, Tim always goes for the brownies, I'm sure, but we've got a wide variety of great desserts. So uh, if you're not a brownie person, we've got something for you. Uh, lemon bars and things like that, you know, there you go. So. Uh, hey, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so inside your program, as Tim mentioned, is a green and white message note sheet. I'm looking forward to this message. I think it's one of the most important topics we can talk about as followers of Jesus, what it looks like to, to follow him the way of the cross. And so I'm excited about that. Let's pray together and see what God does. Amen? So Father, we come before you and Lord, I'm just reminded of your word in 1 Corinthians 5 that we'll be to before too long where... Where Paul says, when you gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the power of the Lord is there. And Father, we just thank you that when we gather in Jesus' name, that the power of the Lord is here. Lord, we welcome you as our King, as our Lord, as our teacher. We just acknowledge your presence. We thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection that makes all things new. It releases the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, that we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that you would come today, Lord, that you would cleanse your temple, that you would fill your temple with your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story starts today in the coastal town of Oceanside in Southern California. Uh, this is, is a story from my own life, right? So... I was a young man, it was like five years ago, and uh, hey, hey, uh, <laughs> hey, help me out, you know. So, uh, so yeah, we're going way back, I was in my 20s, and uh, Lynn and I had um, graduated from, uh, from college, we'd returned home to San Diego County, and we had started attending church at a, a small little church that was destined to become one day a real big church, but we didn't know that. And, uh, and so after we were there a couple years ago, that, uh, a couple years into it, the pastor, who was just a, a young guy when we first met, he was 28, I was 23, and after a couple years of us attending this little church, he pulled me aside uh, one night and said, uh, hey, uh, hey, would you be willing, uh, interested in getting together, kind of sharing our lives? Uh, everywhere I've been, I've always kind of shared my life with someone, would you be interested in getting together maybe every week, maybe Friday afternoon, and just sharing our life, what God's doing in our life, and, and I was excited about that. In fact, the Lord had told me just a week before we were considering leaving this little church for a variety of reasons, and the Lord had told me I was to stay for this man, and I didn't understand that, and so it was perfect timing, and I said, I'd be so excited to do that, and so we began uh, building our friendship, and it was a very special, very special season uh, so he was a pastor of this young church. I was, uh, I was an administrator at a local Christian high school. I'd started there a couple years before as a high school Bible teacher, and then they'd asked me to move into administration, become a dean of students. And so uh, every week as we got together on Fridays, we'd kind of share our weeks. And a big part of my story was what was going on at the school. The longer that I was at the school, the more frustrated I was becoming because it was a school that, in my opinion, lacked clear vision, lacked clear 
values. And whenever any organization lacks clear vision and values, it always leads to inconsistency and kind of how you live out your how you live out that, that organ, the life of that organization. And so I was often frustrated. And so in these meetings that we'd meet and share our weeks, I was often talking about that. And the, the interesting thing was is that he and I were wired in similar ways. Uh, we had similar kind of leadership philosophy, similar values. And so he was very sympathetic to my concerns, often agreed, usually agreed with kind of what, what my perspective. Um, and he was very supportive, very supportive. Um, but on this day, on this Friday afternoon, as we sat there on his grass outside of his house um, with a sunny uh, kind of blue sky day, that as I was sharing with him kind of my, recent, my most recent episode in this drama, that he looked at me and said something that was destined to change the course of my life. It was something that was powerful. It was something that was profound. It was something that was extremely painful, that went like an arrow deep into my heart. Well, today, we are continuing the series that we've been in the last couple months. It's called Christ, Culture, and the Cross. And for those of you who are brand new, uh, a special welcome. Um, we're so glad you're here. Uh, this is a series, it's an in-depth study of one of the most important letters, I think especially for our time, uh, in the New Testament. That's uh, a letter from the Apostle Paul to a group of Christ followers that he had led to Jesus. A little church had been formed about three years before in the southern tip of Greece in a very strategic cosmopolitan city of Corinth. As we call this letter, 1 Corinthians. And so if you've been with us the last few weeks, that, that last week we entered into chapter four, this long letter that's gonna be finished about the time that Jesus returns. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn to 1 Corinthians 4. We're going to be continuing that journey today. Uh, there in your note sheet is a section called Christ, Culture, and the Cross, uh, the core issue. And we're only going to be looking at three verses today. My assistant asked me this week, how can it be so long when there's only three verses? And uh, I said, I don't know, but that's the way it goes. And so... Uh, before we jump in and, and look at this passage together, uh, I want to set the stage where we've been. So if you've been here, you kind of know this drill, but, but it's important to set up. So, so when Paul first came, Paul and his team first came to the ancient city of Corinth, they share this very countercultural, controversial message about a crucified Messiah, that the Holy Spirit worked in a powerful way and Many people came to Jesus, they received the Holy Spirit, but they also received this wide array of very impressive spiritual gifts, uh, supernatural experiences, new knowledge, and as a result, it had kind of gone to their head. And they, they saw themselves as extremely wise, uh, very kind of profound people, very mature. But as we saw at the start of chapter three, Paul said the reality is, is they're, they're not panumatikos, they're not spiritual people being led by the spirit, they're actually kind of following the vision and values of their culture, they're following their all human nature, their flesh, and this is leading to all kinds of problems, and one of the biggest problems that comes up right away in this letter is we find out that they're, they're actually dividing uh, into different camps and factions based on their favorite Christian teacher or leader uh, much like they used to divide before they knew Jesus based on their favorite philosophers, Greek philosophers. And so 
Uh, this has led Paul, the last couple chapters, to really focus in on spiritual leadership and how we should look at our spiritual leaders, uh, the role they play in our life, and when God puts us in a place of leadership, whether it's in our home, whether it's in the community, whether it's in the church of Jesus, in our, in our career, what does it look like to lead like Jesus, not like the culture? And so that's what we're picking up, but today, uh, Paul is going to go beyond the superficial problem, which was this dividing into factions, and he's going to talk about the core issue. Like, what, what is the core issue that's driving these factions? And what we're going to see is it's uh, what the ancient theologians called the mother of all sins, which is pride, right? So we're going to look at three verses, and here we go. So chapter 4 and verse 6, we'll pick up. This is where we left off last week. So he says, now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things. So he's been teaching them this last chapter about spiritual leadership and, and principles of spiritual leadership. <clears throat> so he said, I've applied these things, these principles, to myself and Apollos. So Paul, uh, uh, Paul, one, one of the other teachers that had been a very gifted teacher that Paul knew, a colleague of his, a friend of his that had come to Corinth after Paul left, was this leader named Apollos. And so the last couple chapters, last chapter or so, He's been kind of using himself and Apollos as an illustration of these principles. And so he said, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying. And he makes this quote, do not go beyond what is written. Now, if you were here last week, what I said is we don't really know for sure what Paul means when he says, do not go beyond what is written. He may be referring to <coughs> scriptures he's been quoting in these first three chapters, <laughs> or he may be speak, uh, referring to a specific like uh, quote or kind of a tagline or motto that's going around in Corinth. But either way, the point is clear. He says if you, if you kind of listen to this, what we're telling you about how you should look at spiritual leaders, you, you won't be getting off track spiritually and, uh, and causing these factions. And so he says, then you'll not be, what's the next couple words? Then you'll not be what? Puffed up. Can we say that together? Kind of puffed up, like full of hot air. Okay? Uh, this is an important word in this, uh, in, in this letter. We're not going to go into the Greek, but it's used five times in this letter. The Corinthians were very puffed up. And in the other locations when we get there, sometimes it's translated puffed up, but other times it's translated proud or arrogant. And this is the core issue. Why are they dividing up into different camps? To show how superior, how much more sophisticated, how wise they are. Now this happens today in Christian circles, doesn't it? I'm a Calvinist, well I'm an Arminian, right? And we need to like show how wise we are by the position, well I'm post-trip, well I'm pre-trip, you know? Well, this is my position, women in ministry. This is my position. Like these important kind of issues, not kind of secondary, but important issues in the church that we often feel like we need to like stake our claim of where we come from so everyone knows that we're how wise we are. And that was really the issue. And so uh, Paul is going, he says, uh, he says, then you will not be puffed up in becoming a follower of one of us you know, Paul, Apollos, Peter, over against the other. And now he's going to kind of remind them how ridiculous this pride is. 
Because the reality is they come to Jesus. And in chapter one, we, we all learn this, right? This is the basic that, that we come to Jesus not based on our performance, but based on his. Remember what he said in chapter one? That God's designed us that way so no one would boast. And, and so they've come to Jesus not as a result of anything they did. And when the Holy Spirit poured out these spiritual gifts, this spiritual knowledge, these experiences, it was not because they earned it. It was all a gift and so why are they so proud when it was all a gift? And so that's what he gets at in chapter, in verse seven. He says, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you, what's the next word? Boast, Boast. very important word, we're gonna come back. And if you did, and if you, if you did receive it as a gift, then why do you boast as if you didn't? And so now he's going to begin to challenge their view of himself, and he's going to get very sarcastic. And I always love this for obvious reasons. But he's going to challenge their view. They see themselves as very wise. They see themselves as very profound. And he's already told them back at the start of chapter 3, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual people, led by the Spirit, but as babes, but now he's going to begin to kind of attack their kind of self-image, how they see themselves spiritually. And he says, already you have all you want, right? So in the Greek, it says, already you're satiated. Like, like you've had a full dinner and you're just stuffed, you know, you can't eat another bite. That's how they saw themselves. We're spiritually just stuffed. You know, we're so wise. And he said, already you become rich. They, they see themselves as like, Oh, when it comes to spirituality, we're just, we're just loaded. You know, we're, we're rich. It, it reminds me of what Jesus said in, Philipp, in uh, Romans, I mean, Revelation 3 to the church of Laodicea. He said, you think of yourself as, you see yourself as rich and have need of nothing, but the reality is you're poor, blind, wretched, and naked. And so they, they have this really wrong self-image of themselves he said, you, you've, you've be, he said, you've already begun to reign. It's like you, you're acting like Jesus has come back and you're already in the kingdom. He said, and that without us. You don't even need us anymore. He said, man, how, how I wish you really had begun to reign. I, I, I wish you were what you think you were so that we might reign with you. And so next week he's going to come back and he's going to challenge them. They, they have this image of what spiritual leaders should look like and what true spirituality should look like. And it's totally anti-Jesus and the cross. It's all influenced by their culture. And next week he's going to, hey, if you want to look like what it looks like to follow Jesus and the cross, you need to be looking at the apostles of Jesus and what's happening to them. They're the model you need to follow. And so we'll come back next week and talk about the way of the cross part two. Um, but for today, I want to focus in on this critical issue of spiritual pride as we compare kind of the way of Christ and his cross, what it looks like to follow Jesus with the way of culture, and this very important issue of pride versus humility. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called uh, Christ, Culture, and the Cross, the Way of the Cross, Part 1. So what I want to do is start with kind of two big picture principles that flow out of this passage that help us understand the passage. Then we're going to come back at the end and ask five specific questions to see which path we're on. And so here, here's the first principle. Uh, <laughs> to understand the whole situation of Corinth, what we're going to see in this letter is that Corinth boasted a culture of pride. 
Corinth boasted a culture of pride. Like if we're going to understand this letter all the way through, we have to understand that the culture of Corinth in general was a, a culture that boasted in pride. Now this is very foreign to us, and the reason it's foreign is because we live in a culture that's been shaped radically by the gospel of Jesus, even though we live in a post, post-Christian age, era. And we, we might talk about that later. But I, what we need to do is take off our 21st century glasses right now and put on our first century glasses, go back in time to what life was like in the first century Roman Empire. So when we go back there, here's what we find, that, that most of the cultures in the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus and the apostles were what we call honor-shame cultures. In the honor-shame. And so in an honor-shame culture, the highest value of the culture is to attain on public honor. All right? So in our culture, if you, if you were to say, what is the highest value in American culture, I would say the highest value is happiness. How many times do you have parents like, what do you, what do you, how do you, all I want them to do is to be happy. But in the ancient world, it wasn't happiness, it was honor that was the highest value. To be seen as uh, meriting honor, you've achieved honor. The worst fear is that you would be dishonored or your family would be dishonored. And so in that culture, catches that boasting, and we would call it probably bragging, boasting about who we are and what we've accomplished was not only normative, it was seen as a positive. It was seen like, well, this is how you get the honor you deserve, by telling everyone how great you are and what you've accomplished and what you have. And so let me give you an example. If we had more time today, I would read excerpts of this, what I'm about to describe, but we don't. Um, in the first century, um, in the first century, there's a very famous historical document we have that was written by Augustus Caesar. So Augustus Caesar was the first Caesar. He was the greatest of all the Caesars. He was the Caesar that reigned uh, during the birth, like when, when Christ was born, and it's up until his teenage years. Right? And so at the end of his life, Augustus Caesar, who really did accomplish amazing things, but Augustus Caesar, he writes, catch this, a 2,500-word document. It goes page after page after page, telling you all the great things that he's done in his life. And it's, it's not in third person, it's in first person. Hey, when I was 19, I did this, and when I was 26, I did this, and I conquered this, and I conquered this, and I took out the pirates, and I rebuilt this, and I did this, and no one's ever been honored like me before. And this was considered very normal. And so after he wrote this document, catch this, he had it inscribed on bronze tablets to be put in a room so everyone can read it. And then he made copies of it made, had copies to send throughout the Roman Empire so everyone could read this, how amazing he was throughout the Roman Empire. Now that probably wouldn't fly today, right? Because we've, we've been so influenced by the culture of Jesus. But in the first century, that was very normal to boast about who you were and what you've done. And what I want you to catch, the Corinthians have come to Jesus, but they're still thinking like their culture, not like Christ. 
And so they are, we're gonna see this word boast often, and that's what this whole division thing is coming out of. In fact, I wanna give you a couple examples. If, open your Bibles, because this one's not on your note sheet. If you're gonna you need to open your Bibles, I know that's a big chore for some of you. It's like, hey, we already did this once, but just come with me, okay? <laughs> Chapter three and verse 21, where he's talking about this dividing over leaders, and look what he says. So then, no more what? Okay, okay, I'm gonna wait for the rest of you to catch it. All right, ready? Okay, here we go. So no more boasting about human leaders. You see, this is why they were dividing to show how wise they were, how smart they were. And then once they divided, they had to boast about this that they would receive the honor that would come from being the smartest one. So they get the honor they deserve. Look with me in chapter four and verse seven. This one will come up on the screen for those of you who don't wanna be bothered. Um, in first chapter four, verse seven, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you didn't? You see, this is the issue. We will see this coming up over and over in chapter five. There's like blatant immorality going on in the church and Paul say, and you're boasting? Right, so it's gonna come up again and again. And so what I want you to call, catch is that the culture of Corinth was a culture of pride, a culture of boasting. And though these Christians had come to Jesus, they were still living uh, by the vision and values of their culture rather than Christ. Now number two, number two is that Jesus introduced the culture of humility. So with the coming of Jesus, he introduced a new definition of greatness. And he marked out a different path to true honor. Honor is a good thing. That we all wanna live our lives so that when we stand before Jesus at the end, we'll receive glory and honor and immortality, Romans 2 says. Right? And so honor is not a bad thing, but he marks out a different path and a different audience. We wanna seek honor with God, not honor with people, and it's a different path to be truly honored. And so Jesus kind of introduced what we might call a humility revolution. That prior to Jesus, if you study ancient writings of this time, humility was not seen as a positive. It was seen as a negative. And so Jesus kind of redefined humility so much that, by, that it became a dominant value in Western civilization until we still honor it today. Now we're becoming a culture that's increasingly honoring pride over humility. Uh, kind of watch uh, NFL films from 50 years ago, what would happen when someone scored a touchdown and they would run by and hand the ball to the ref versus what happens today. Oh, look at me, I'm the greatest, you know, right? So we're, we're, becoming, we're moving back as we move away from the gospel of Jesus, we're moving into a culture of pride. In arrogance, but, it was, uh, but when Jesus came, he introduced something new to the whole world, this culture of humility. And so we saw this a couple weeks ago. Remember back about three or four weeks ago, I was teaching on Leadership 101, and we looked at this passage in the Gospel of Mark, and it's a fascinating passage. We'll just hit it quickly today, because we hit it then. But Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the very last time. Those disciples don't know that. And uh, two of his men, two of his inner circle, hit him up, James and John. They want the positions of honor. This is very, very first century honor shame. 
They, hey, they want to sit on his right and left. They want the position of honor and power. And, uh, and so Jesus takes the opportunity to say, hey, we're introducing in my kingdom, we're introducing a new culture. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a culture of pride. It's a culture of humility. And so he says, so Jesus uh, called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, their leaders, they lord it over them. They love to boss people around, show how powerful they are. And their high officials exercise authority over them. But catch this, but not so with you. A new culture is coming. And he said, instead, here's the path to true greatness. You want to be honored? Here's the path to true honor. Whoever wants to become great must, among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. So honor, yes, but we're seeking honor before God, and there's a whole different path. And so this path is a path of humility. Now, uh, we, need to stop, we need to take a couple of minutes and talk in, about what we mean by humility. Because even in our world today, as followers of Jesus, we often have misunderstanding of what biblical humility is about. Like, for example, often we think of humility as someone who has uh, a really low self-image. So I'm nothing, I'm worthless, I have no confidence, I'll never amount to anything. Wow, what a humble person. Right? We think of humility as being really good at something uh, and then pretending you're not. You know, like Lauren does an amazing song and you come up after, thank you, the Lord just touched me, it's so beautiful, and oh, nothing, anyone could have done it. No, they couldn't have. If I would have done it, I promise you, the Lord wouldn't have like touched you like that, right? Like it would have been a totally different response, right? And so, so sometimes we think of humility as like that. Oh, that was, oh, oh no, I'm not really, it's a downplay. And that's not what biblical humility is about. And so we want to talk, I want to talk just a few minutes about what is humility? And obviously we're not going to touch everything about humility, but I, I want to just highlight two important statements about humility that could be very important or very helpful. So the first one there in your notes, you have a section called humility, what is it? And so let's, let's do this one first. Humility starts with an accurate view of ourselves. Okay. So humility is not seeing ourselves as less than we are. It's not seeing as more than we are. It's an accurate view of ourselves, complete with all our strengths, our weaknesses, um, our successes, our failures, our achievements, our limitations. Um, it's interesting. There's a very famous passage that many of you will know in Romans chapter 12. We talk about it here all the time. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, in light of all that God has done for you, that we should present our bodies as living sacrifices. Okay, we know that. The next verse says, and that we need to be uh, transformed by the renewing of our mind. But what does that look like to, to live a life that's a living sacrifice and to be transformed? Well, the rest of Romans 12 gives us some examples. And the very first thing Paul says is it starts with an accurate view of ourself. And in verse three, this is what he says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with what? Sober judgment. Sober judgment. Like don't look at yourself and be under the influence. <laughs> right? Have a, have a realistic view of yourself. And so 
as believers, what does it look like to have a realistic view of ourselves? Well, I want to give you a little diagram. Uh, it's not on your note sheet, so you're going to have to draw this in. Um, but I want you to draw a, uh, a triangle there, right? And what I'm going to suggest is that to see ourselves clearly, that we have to be looking at ourselves through like three different lenses or from three different angles to get kind of a 3D look at ourselves. And so I'm going to label these three sides of the triangle for us, okay? So this first side going up. <laughs> this first side is that we, to see ourselves as created beings, okay? The, the first step is that to see, have an accurate view, we have to see ourselves as created beings. In other words, you and I are creatures and we're completely dependent on God for the very breath we breathe. Like the next time you're getting a big head, just go fast for three days. One of the greatest things about fasting is that it really helps with the pride. Because you can feel so strong and so smart and so brilliant, so capable, and just try going without food for three days. And tell me how strong and brilliant you're feeling. Right? That we're dependent beings. Uh, in Colossians, we're told that Jesus upholds the entire cosmos with his word. That all he has to do is say the word and we go away. I love what Paul says in Acts chapter 17 in his famous uh, teaching to the, the pagans in Athens. He says, you know, he's telling about the real God and he says, and he quotes one of their famous poets. And he says, you know, you, you're, you're on the, this guy was on the right track. He says, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. As creatures, we're completely dependent on the creator and that should lead to an attitude of gratitude. Okay. So that's the first, we're created beings. We're not self-sufficient. Like we can't, we can't sustain ourselves by ourselves. We're dependent beings, we're creatures, right? Second side of the triangle, that we are fallen people. That because of our rebellion against God, we're, we're a fallen race. Each of us has, born, has been born with a rebellious DNA and we have lived our lives in rebellion. We all know this. We, we all know the pull of the dark side, right? This magnetic pull that we were born with. And so in Ephesians uh, chapter two, it says that, that we're all by nature children of wrath. We're under the judgment of God because who we are as a rebel race, that's a second piece of who we are. But there's a third window, a th third angle, and that's that we are a restored people, Amen. right? That through Jesus and his cross, based on nothing we did so no one can boast, we're restored and we find out when we come to Jesus, we find out that we are loved from before time began, that God chose us before time began. When we were in our rebellion, he chose us, he called us to himself and not only to forgive us, but to adopt us as his own sons and daughters. 
that we're, we're sons and daughters of the king. He's given us his own Holy Spirit. In fact, our very bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit. And then on top of that, we've been uniquely gifted with spiritual gifts so we can join Jesus in his mission to bring all heaven and earth healed and restored under his leadership. And we have an amazing future. So this is who we are. And so there's sort of a paradox about us that what is a true view? Well, we're, we're creatures, we're dependent. We were fallen, far from God, and yet we've been rescued. In the middle of that triangle, write the word you. This is who we are. And this is why the New Testament, this is why like Paul can sound different at different times. He, he can say things like, I'm the greatest of all sinners. Yeah, he can say that because of that, that rebel side. He can say things like in Romans 7, like in me, that is in my flesh, kind of my natural human nature, there is no good thing. That's part of the truth about us. But he can also say that in Christ, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He can also say, hey, when I come to you in Rome, I will come with the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He can say that Jesus chose me and I've worked harder than all the rest of the apostles. But it's not me, it's the grace of God in me. See, even as believers who know Jesus and we're sons and daughters of the king, we, we learn this in our Christian life. What Jesus said, without me, you can do what? Nothing. And, and this is one of our biggest lessons that we're like sailboats on the sea of life that we only move if the Spirit's blowing. And so we're completely dependent on our vine for the sap of our life, right? And so as believers, this is a true picture of who we are. First of all, I'm a, I'm a created being. I'm dependent on him for my life and breath and everything else. Second, this is who I was apart from Jesus. This is my story. And third, this is who I am now as a follower of Jesus. And it's this three-dimensional, this 3D view that gives us a true view of ourselves that leads to an appropriate attitude of humility. And it's a beautiful thing. You know, often we think of humility, I think, as a negative thing. It's like, like when we start getting, we start thinking too positively about ourselves. I need to tamp that down because I've got too high a view. But you know, from the New Testament point of view, humility is one of those beautiful things. In fact, it's often called the mother of all the virtues because with humility comes this new freedom and it's a freedom for our, from ourselves and it's a freedom from our insecurities and it's a freedom from our self-absorption, free to live the life that we were created to live, uh, focused outside of ourselves, not inside of ourselves. I'm telling you, if there was, Jesus was here and I could ask for one thing and I'd have to choose, I think one thing would be high on my list would be just humility. Because I want to be set free of this self-absorption in my life. Amen? Beautiful. Can I tell you something? This is something that our culture has a very different story about who we are. So our culture says, basically, you are amazing. And you need to tell your kids that all the time. 
And their biggest danger in life is to ever think there's something wrong with them. That's why we give out participation stickers now. Because if you ever competed and lost, oh, you might, you might have a bad view of yourself and then you become a sociopath or something, right? And so in our culture, the, the, the narrative of our culture is that you are amazing and your parents, the only problem with you is your parents didn't tell you that. And so what you need is a therapist who will tell you that. And then you just need to keep telling yourself how amazing you are. And then you'll be amazing. The problem is, the reason it doesn't work is because that doesn't align with reality. Because apart from Jesus, we are not amazing. We're selfish. We're greedy. We're full of lust. We're full of jealousy. We naturally tend toward dissension. All the works of the flesh that we see all around us that make the world go round. And so you're trying to tell a whole generation the secret of life is telling yourself how great you are. The problem, it doesn't work, because you aren't. And if you drink the Kool-Aid, and you think you are that amazing, you become impossible to live with. Because no one else thinks you're that amazing. And that leads to conflict at every turn and touchiness at every turn. You're not respecting me. You're disrespecting me. I'm amazing. You're not telling me that. That's an offense. I can't let that go. I need to cancel you out of my life. Right? You see where we go? It's like, it's like the wisdom of the world doesn't align with reality. That's why it doesn't work. So the first step towards humility is having a clear, accurate view of ourselves. And the longer we walk with Jesus, the more clear it should get. Okay? Secondly, the second thing about humility, New Testament humility, is humility seeks the best for others. The humility in um, the New Testament sense, it's not about having a negative view of yourself, it's just it's a very high view of others and, and, a, and a deep desire to bless and serve them. So, so pride is self-focused, it's narcissistic. Um, it makes everything about me, but humility lives for others. I love what C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is, is outward focused. Um, now, it's interesting. Uh, I've talked about this in the first century. There was this humility revolution. Right, so when Jesus came, he introduced this new value of humility. And one of the, uh, the books that's been most helpful to me personally, we have a few copies in our, book, in our bookstore, but one of the, the books that's been most helpful to understand first century culture in this area of, uh, of pride and humility is a book called Humilitas that's written by uh, a, a scholar, uh, kind of teaches at university uh, in Australia. He's actually a Christian guy. His name is uh, John Dixon. 
And in, in this book, he kind of surveys, like, here's what pride and honor uh, worldview look like, culture look like, and here's, here's kind of how the, how the ancient world worked and shows documents to, to, to you know, support that. Here's what Jesus uh, brought, but he defines, helps us define what New Testament humility is about. And there in your note sheet, he says, humility is the noble choice. So think of Jesus as being the paradigm that although he was equal with God, gave that up. So humility is the noble choice to forego your status, to deploy your resources, or use your influences for the good of others before yourself. More simply, you could say that the humbled person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service of others. Now, of course, this is exactly what Jesus did, right? He, he models this. The one who had all the power, who gave up the power for us, to rescue us. So here's what I want you to catch. We've talked about this several times in this series, but I want to keep coming back to it. That often as modern day Christ followers, when we look at the cross of Jesus, we think, we look backward in time and we say, hey, this was the place of our redemption. This was the place where God rescued us. This is the place of atonement. And of course it is. But what I want you to catch is this cross that we look at is not something we just look back to. It's something that casts a shadow into our future. And so this is the way forward. This is the path of Jesus. This is what it looks like to live, uh, live at, to follow Christ and his cross because it was on the cross that the heart of Jesus was most revealed, that he was a man for others. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to say, he's a man for others. And so what this does is, this is the path forward. This is the path to life, that we would be, when we talk about being transformed to be like Jesus, it's to have his heart. That we would be living what scholars often call a cruciform life that we would be living our lives for others. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus in the way of the cross. And so throughout the New Testament, uh, the apostles talk about this. And one of the best passages is in Philippians chapter two. We've talked about it two or three times in the series where Paul is helping the Christians at Philippi to understand, catch this, the implications of the cross the values of the cross. Not just something we look back to, but marks our, the path forward. And he says this, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, this is a story of Corinth. They were doing everything out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And he says, rather in humility, there's our word, catch this, value others above yourselves. See, there's the value not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Well, what was his mindset? How did Jesus look at life? Well, Paul says that you can see the mindset of Jesus most revealed in the cross. And in that passage, if we were to continue reading, is this famous passage where Paul says, that though he was in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be held onto, 
but he made himself nothing, became a servant. And then look at how it, how it goes in 2.8. And being, and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to death, but not just death, but death on, on a cross. The ultimate humiliation of the Roman Empire. That he would go that low in order to serve us. And Paul says, now you see the heart of Jesus and now you understand the way of the cross. And the cross is, as we just look back to, the cross marks our way forward. That we live our lives for others, sacrificing like he did. Now, so, so that's, that's kind of understanding the passage, right? Understanding the, the way of the cross. And what I want to do right now is I want to get as practical as I can. And I want to ask five questions to help us do some self-diagnosis are we on the way of the cross or the way of culture? Now, as I ask these questions, again, I want to highlight, I'm not asking them to shame you, right? This is not a, what, what I'm doing is, is more, it's more an educational process. That often we don't understand what true humility looks like. And so I want to ask five questions to help us me- ourselves measure, like, are we living out the life of the cross? Or like the Corinthians, are we really on the path to culture? And before we dive in, I want to say very clearly that I am with you on these. I don't have any one of these even nearly mastered. These questions reveal pride, and they reveal pride. Every one of these reveals pride in me as well. So we're in this together. Um, there's no, can we, we just be honest? Uh, you don't have to be honest with the person next to you, just yourself. Just be honest with. But here we go. So it's going to start with a, a very general question, but it gets us going. Number one, are you growing in humility? So what we've seen today, that this goes to the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that humility is the mother of all the virtues. And so as followers of Jesus, if we're becoming like Jesus, we're growing in our humility. We're getting a clearer and clearer view of who we are with strengths, weaknesses, and all that. Uh, We have a more realistic view. We're becoming more and more other-focused rather than than ourselves-focused, and so like, are, are, which way are you growing? Would those who know you best, would they say that you're becoming more like Jesus in your humility than five years ago? Or would they say, no, you're getting more arrogant or proud as time goes on? Now, <laughs> good laugh there. Okay, so, uh, so, uh, so the thing is, is that uh, often we are not really good at judging ourselves in this. Like the Corinthians thought they were doing great, right? They weren't. And sometimes it's hard to assess this. You know, we started the day with a story from my own life about this friendship I had at this previous church. And, uh, and, you know, how we get together every Friday and, and how often I was sharing kind of the drama at this Christian school. Um, and so we were pretty close friends at this time. Um, he, he knew the ins and outs of the situation. And like I said, almost always he agreed with my assessment, my analysis, kind of what we should do. Um, he'd been very supportive. But on this day, and I don't know, maybe he just was waiting for this perfect moment. But on this day, as we're sitting there on his grass talking, and I'm kind of complaining about these other leaders not getting it, that he said, you know, the problem with you, Mike, 
Now I'm Mike in those days, remember? Yeah. He said, the problem with you, Mike, is that sometimes you come across as incredibly arrogant. That word, I'll never forget. And that, that sliced like an arrow deep in my heart. And you know the reason it went so deep was because the moment he said it, I knew it was 100% right. And prior to that, I wouldn't have said that. If you would have said, hey, do you think you kind of come across as arrogant? No, no, no. I'm just a realist. I just tell it like it is. You know, I'm just perceptive. (laughs) I wouldn't have said that. But the moment he said that, I knew it was true. You know, sometimes you can be right about an issue, but wrong with your heart. Later in Corinthians, we'll learn this, that one of their highest values as a church was knowledge, like wisdom and like knowledge. And Paul's going to say something later on, very powerful, he'll get to chapter 8, he's going to say, knowledge puffs up. Remember that word? Makes proud, arrogant. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And what he's going to say is that in these secondary areas, our highest value, the greatest sign of maturity is not knowledge, but love. And, you know, looking back on that whole interchange, that whole situation, I still think to this day I was right. And I think I probably was because, you know, as I've learned about leadership over the years, it's like without a clear vision, without clear values, you're never going to have your organization practice consistently. It's always going to cause problems. But though I was right in my assessment, I was wrong in my heart. And here's what I want you to catch is that often we're the last ones to know we have an issue. Sometimes we have to ask those around us, like, what do you think? But here's where we begin. Are you self-centered or other-centered? Number two. Number two is, uh, are you self-centered or other-centered? Number two, are you, are you self-centered or are you other-centered? Uh, we've seen today one of the marks of true humility is there's, a, there's an outward focus that we're not self-absorbed, we're more absorbed with others. And so in your life, um, do you find that your conversation, for example, tends to be mostly about you? Like, like when someone brings up a topic, you go, oh yeah, I've experienced that, and you go on for five minutes, Right? The conversation's about you. Your life and priorities, it's about you. The way you spend your time, it's all about you. Um, Your prayer life, it's all about you. One of the marks of a humble person is that they're focused on those outside of them. And and there's beautiful freedom in that. I love what Lewis says again, Sis Lewis. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, He'll be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. 
Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He'll not be thinking about himself at all. There's this beauty of being set free from our own self-absorption. Jesus has come to set us free to live for others, like not to be self-absorbed. Number three, are you quick to overlook an offense? One of the marks of a proud person is they are easily offended. And when they're offended, they're very slow to forgive. They, they hold on to offenses and they, they become bitter. They hold grudges um, and maybe even vendettas. And the reason, if you stop and think of it, makes sense because they have a very high view of themselves. They see themselves as the center of the universe. So when you sin against them, you're sin sinning against the center of the universe. That's a big deal. And we can't just let this go. You might make that mistake again. Right? And I'm going to be slow to forgive you because you don't realize the seriousness of the crime you've committed. You've sinned against me, the center of the universe. Now, we don't like put it in that words, but it's a mark of a proud person. It's really interesting as you study the New Testament and the topic of humility, what you find is humility tends to live in a neighborhood with certain other virtues, certain other character qualities. Um, character qualities like patience. Like it's the next door neighbor of humility is patience. And then across the street is bearing with one another. And then two doors down, it's gentleness. And I'll go the other direction, there's kindness. That these things, remember I said that humility is like the mother of virtues? It, it, it tends to go with these other virtues. Like there in your note sheet, in Ephesians 4, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely, what? Humble, and in the Greek it says, with all humility, right? So be completely humble, and be what? Gentle. gentle. Can I tell you something? That humble people tend to be gentle people. Proud people tend to be harsh. Like one, in my life, one of the greatest pride alarms on the dashboard of my life is when I'm harsh with my wife. Sometimes I'm just harsh. I, I'm just short. I'm just impatient. Not even mean that. I mean this. Like, didn't you see? It's like the, the pride button's going off. My, beep, beep, beep. Right? Like, proud people are harsh people. Humility lives with gentleness next door. Um, so be, be patient, right? A mark of humility is patient. They're, they're not quick to take offense. They're patient with you. They don't expect perfection. They know we all blow it. And they, they bear with one another in love. It's like they're willing to just let things go. Hey, they didn't mean it. That's okay. I'll just let it go. I'm going to make a big deal of it. Not the proud person. They don't bear with anything. It's like, they did that again. I can't believe that. And if you're an, a courageous extrovert, you blast them and let them know. 
If you're insecure, introvert, just store it away. I'll get them treating me like that. Who do they think they are? There they go doing it again. They didn't even know they did it. Let's go to the next verse. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Now, he's going to talk about humility, but look what's around him. Compassion. Compassion lives in the neighborhood. Kindness. Yeah, that lives in the neighborhood. Now, we have humility, there it is. But next door, we've got gentleness. And then across the street, we've got patience. And we're going to bear with each other, and we're going to forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Remember that accurate view of ourselves. The humble person always remembers what they've been forgiven. The proud person kind of looks through you and your problems with this end of the telescope that magnifies them. They turn it around. They look at themselves through the opposite that minimizes their sin. Number four, how are we doing? Still with me? Okay, number four. Number four, how much conflict do you create? Um, proud people tend to create conflict wherever they go. And the reason, it just makes sense. I mean, they're, they're seeking their own honor. They're looking out for number one. They're selfish. They're self-absorbed. They're easily offended. They're slow to forgive. And this just leads to conflict and bitterness and anger and vendettas. You know, in James 3, is this beautiful passage about humility it says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show up by their good life. Like the, the, if you're truly wise, it'll be, it was seen in your life, like what was not happening with the Corinthians. And it says, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. That true wisdom leads to humility. We have a true and accurate view of life. And so humility leads to deeds done in wisdom. And he said, well, here's the kinds of deeds. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, but then catch it, it's peace-loving. It's considerate of others. It's submissive. It doesn't have to always have its own way. It's full of mercy. Jump down to the end. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So true wisdom, seeing life, seeing ourselves properly, it leads to, there's a humility that leads to certain deeds. It leads to a life that, is doesn't have to have their own way, that's considerate of others. All these things create peace. Whereas a proud person, wherever they go, there's gonna be conflict. It doesn't matter, in their marriage, in their family, in their career, in their life group, in their ministry team, that proud people just create conflict. Number five, how do you respond to correction? One of the marks of a wise person, a humble person, is they're willing to receive feedback, correction, even criticism, um, because they realize what their strengths, weaknesses, and limitations. They realize that, well, we all have blind spots. There's things we don't see. And so they're open to correction, to feedback, to criticism. Now, catch this. It doesn't mean they always agree. Just because someone criticized doesn't mean they're right, but they're open to receive it and to take it before the Lord and say, is, is that true? Like, is this true? You know, it's interesting. When I was in my 20s, I did a study of the book of Proverbs, and the question I was asking is, how do you become a wise person? 
And you know, I was so shocked because what Proverbs says is that one of the marks of the wise is they're open to rebuke. They're open to correction. And that blew me away because as a young man, I thought, no, this is the whole point of being wise. You don't need to be corrected. Like if you're wise, you don't need correction. And Proverbs says, no, no, this is the path to wisdom. That is being open to critique. Like men, are you open to critique from your wives? Wives, are you open to critique from your husband? Are we open to critique from our children, from those in our life group, from spiritual leaders in our lives, from colleagues at work? Again, not that they're always right, but but the wise person, the humble person, is willing to receive it because they realize they don't know everything, and God may be using this person to bring them important piece of truth, even if it's just a seed of truth in, in something that's mostly wrong. They're looking for that seed of truth. So in Proverbs it says, whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. So five questions, but the main thing I want you to catch today is this big picture that the way of Christ and his cross at the core is the way of humility, as defined biblically. That as followers of Jesus, if we're gonna follow Jesus and his cross, not the culture, we're gonna live countercultural lives that embrace this value that was best revealed on that cross where he hung there for us, the mindset of Jesus, the one who goes to the corner, picks up the basin and towel, strips down as a servant to wash our feet. The God of the universe stooping down to wash our feet. Power that we have used to serve others. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So Lord, we come before you and we just confess right away that we are far from the ideal of We're far from what this looks like, what true humility looks like, but Lord, we want to embrace this value as our North Star, as that mother of all virtues, and we want to ask you to teach us how to walk in the beauty and the freedom of humility. We ask you by your spirit to open our eyes with clarity to who we are so we can have a right view, and that, but then we would listen and follow you, dying to ourselves and serving others as you lead us, that we might grow to become like you. And Father, we thank you for this incredible letter that in the opening chapter, Paul said that that you've set it up this way through the cross that no one could boast. And so may we always boast in that cross. And so as we worship you now, we pray that you use the words of this song to write this truth on our heart that we would be more than ever committed to live a truly cruciform life. We pray this in Jesus' name.